the reason I love this story is because I remember getting off the one train and looking around. It was kind of dark, but I was like, oh, that looks like a really big park. I wonder if that's where they play cricket. And now, like, I'm part of the Van Corlin Track Club, like 20 years down the line, and I run there a lot. So it was this one little thing that happened a long time ago, and I would have never if somebody told me that 16 years, 17 years down the line, you'll be back here coaching or running. I would have probably like, what? Welcome to Chill Track Friday. I'm Anne. Hello, hello. I'm Ali. <laughs> we have a very special um, episode today. I'm going to sort of maybe go out of order here, but I celebrated a birthday a couple of weeks ago and my podcast partner Ali was like, what do you want for your birthday? And I was like, you know what? I really want to interview you for the podcast and give you to our listeners. And you looked really confused. <laughs> so I had the look of that gif of the girl. Maybe we can put that in on Instagram. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Who was like the confused girl look like, like, huh? What? Yeah. So okay. I feel like, you know, we do a lot of talking about running and coffee and aside from our sneak peek, our listeners might not know much about us. So I wanted to interview you. And actually what's really funny about this is that this podcast, it's, you know, it took off in January, but it's been in the think tank for a couple of years because I interviewed you, Ali, in 2017 on a very hot August morning after the Governor's Island 5K that I ran and you came to cheer me on. And then we went to the restaurant downtown and I recorded on my phone and we could play that as the episode, but there's no, a lot of cacophony that. in the background. So we're redoing it. Um so anyway, so welcome to Chill Track Friday. Please state your name for the record. <laughs> Ali Brody. <laughs> Hi. Where does Mozam fit in there, please? Oh yeah, Moz. So my <laughs> my full name is Mozam Ali Brody. Funny story. So maybe I can talk about my name for a second. So um, Moazam is my first name. Ali is my middle name. Brody last. <clears throat> if you didn't figure that out. Um, I was actually Ali Brody until fourth grade. Until third grade, and I was going to switch schools, um, and my dad, for some reason, decided on the forums that he really liked the name Moazam, so... You're like, do I get to say this? Do I, yeah, I'm, I'm like, hey, it's third grade, I'm almost nine years old, like, you're going to change my name, great. Um, so yeah, I switched schools, and in the new school, you know, I became Moazam, and I have a slew of friends back home who know me, who call me Moazam, but... At the same time, my neighborhood, all my neighborhood friends called me Ali. So, but you know, when I moved to the States, I was like, it's much easier to just be Ali. I have two questions for you. Yeah. Um, So those in the know, would they have called you Ali or Mazam? In the know. I'm asking for a friend. (laughs) I think Ali. In the know, like in the circle. In the circle, it's Ali. Okay. Yeah. You know, because like people have nicknames that they are called from if someone knew them from like a really long time ago. Yeah. Like my boss is Jim, but sometimes we get phone calls at the office for Jimmy. And I'm like, I know it's a friend from like third third grade, you know? Um, and so can you tell our listeners where you grew up? Yeah. I, I was born and raised in Pakistan until I was 15 years. I was born in a very small town. My mom was traveling when... She was pregnant with me and they had to stop in a small town a little bit 
It's about it, the name of the town is Cumber, which is about like I think six to eight hour drive away from Karachi. So they were in the in my mom's village and they're tra- traveling back to Karachi, I think. And then she had to stop, like she like she went into labor. And there was a very small clinic there where we had a family member doctor. So they ended up going to that. So I was I was born there, but we lived in Karachi most of our lives in Karachi, Pakistan. And you have told me some really just hilarious stories about being a kid. Can you tell us about your days playing cricket? Yeah, absolutely. So I was I started in third starting in third grade, I realized at least I just really enjoyed playing cricket. Uh, this was right before my name was changed. <laughs> Going into fourth grade, I went to a new school and cricket is pretty big in the in Pakistan, in India, in the subcontinent in general. And um that was the sport of choice on the streets everywhere. And I was relatively good at it, um, pretty good to the point where I actually, right before we came to the United States, I tried out for the under-17 team, the national under-17 team. Um, I actually never found out what the results of those, the tryouts were, because we just, three days later, we moved to the States. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so yeah, it was playing a lot of cricket on the street, cricket, and I had two different teams, the school team and then the neighborhood team. Um, I was the vice captain in the neighborhood team, but I captained the school team. And what what else? Like it was, we would have. I would always sneak out to play play cricket. Um, that was a big problem in the household. Um, so, so Karachi is really hot, right? Like it, we are talking about ninety eight degree average temperature, ninety eight degrees Fahrenheit average temperature. Which may explain why you like running in the heat here. I, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, and in the afternoon is usually a na- usually nap time, and that's when I'll sneak out to go play. In and how did you sneak out? Yeah, I would literally climb the wall along the. We had this front yard, and I would kind of, and there was a little gully on the side, and then I would just go into that, and then, you know, I had I had, I had like three exit points that I could climb out and literally hop the wall, and then go meet my friends. And there would be just four or five of us. Cricket is a 22-person sport, but we would make it work with just four or five of us playing on the side. And sometimes I would have a tutor. You know, sometimes a tutor would come. Like I had like English and math tutors who would come in the afternoon. And if I, I would always lose track of time playing cricket. And then I would see my mom coming to find me on the street in the dead of heat and be <laughs> like, excuse me, the tutor's here. Can you stop these shenanigans and come back? Like, I was like, oh... So yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, so yeah, you told me a really funny story once about this sort of thing where your mom showed up and kind mm-hmm. of got mad at the tutor, but then the tutor had to explain to her what was really going on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this is a really funny story. So I used to, orga- like I've always been around like organizing other people to like make an event happen. So I was the captain of the school team. Um, we we kind of switched, rota- we rotated around. There were diff- other captains too, but during this one particular time in sixth grade, I was a captain. Sixth, it might have been seventh grade, and I I arranged a Saturday match. I was like, a tournament, a Saturday tournament. I had other school teams come. We had multiple teams within our school, and I kind of put the entire roster slash schedule together, and I said we're going to do this Saturday and Sunday, and then I convinced other parents to drive there. You know kids, i.e. my friends there, like I kind of made a flyer. I was always into like computers and designing things. So I made a flyer to make it look official, (laughs) but I never put my name on it. Um, So it kind of spread around and like two weeks later we were having this tournament. And uh, so, but obviously we were young, we were pretty young. So not everybody's parents had to come and drop them off. My mom had to do the same with me, like come pick me up or, um, or I could go on my own, but 
she wasn't comfortable with that. So we got to a point where the third weekend in a row, when the tournament was kind of at its height and we were about in the semifinals and finals, my mom came and uh, asked one of the PT teachers who was actually um, overseeing the game. And she said, you know, you guys need to stop this. Like, this, <laughs> you can't, par- all these parents are working and they have to come and pick up their kids on the weekend. You guys are making it a lot of work for us. Like he already plays it. They play in their neighborhood cricket games too. And the teacher was like, wait, wait, I am volunteering my time. It has nothing to do with me. Your son organized all of this. <laughs> like actually I am giving up my, like, that teacher was volunteering because the school was like, oh, okay, if the tournament's happening, we need someone because we are using the school facilities to host the tournament. <laughs> so the teacher was like, I'm actually volunteering my time because your son organized this whole damn thing. And like, it's not us. The school has nothing to do with it. It's all him. So my mom was like, oh, my God. Like, she didn't, I, I obviously didn't present it that way. Right, of course. I was a little, you know, I didn't lie, but I never said. Right. That. Just don't say anything. Did you, um, did you get in trouble? No, I didn't. <laughs> Actually, good. my mom was really, she was happy about it. Yeah. She, in the moment, she was like, what? Uh, but then, like, a day later, she proudly told the story to my uncle. And my uncle was actually really happy too. We we lived in a big family home where two of my mom's brothers also lived with us. So they were kind of the, you know, father figures. My dad used to travel a lot. He used didn't used to be home most mm-hmm. of the time. So my uncles were kind of my dad's. But um, she'd tell them and they'd be like, what? Yeah, I mean, it displays a, a, a tremendous amount of leadership and organization. And, you know, you rounded up all these kids. I, one of, it's one of my favorite stories. Um, so can you tell us a little bit? So you had all this, like, um, cricket athleticism and also the, like scoring. I don't, let's not even go there because <laughs> I don't understand it. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about how and when and where you came to the United States? How, when, and where? Yeah. So I don't know how many people are familiar with the diversity visa lottery. Um, it might have been started by Carter, President Carter, or Reagan, I forget, one of them. And it's basically, um, it started in the 70s and 80s and each country got a quota of like, they can apply, like fill out an application and then if their name comes out in the lottery, they get a green card. So it kind of, it was just my dad uh, won the lottery. So it was kind of handed on a platter. So it's all pure chance, coincidental. What's funny is that my dad never even filled out the form. It was my mom's younger brother who was at work and one of his friends was filling out forms for himself and he had an extra form and my uncle just filled out my dad's name in the form and not his own. For some reason, he just filled out my dad's name and put it in and then two years later, we got a letter saying, hey, you, like, and you, your wife, and anybody under 18, any of your kids under 18 can have a green card. But that's kind of, just to make it clear, there's a huge process after that. It yeah. takes almost a year to go through the interviews. You have It's a lot of money. Like Back then it was like, I think $450 per person for the visa fees and all of those things. So we had to go through all of that process and that's how we came to the U.S. Um, may I ask a question? Did your, did your uh, uncle tell your father that he had put his name, your father's name, down on the paperwork? Yes. Was it a surprise? Um, no, he, he, had, he had told him, but okay. nobody kind of expected yeah, anything to yeah. happen. Yeah. Like, because... Back in Pakistan, like people put in many applications for one person, even though they know the chances of disqualification if you do put in more than one. But people do it anyway, and it's it's a very small chance because Pakistan is a huge country, and a lot of people want to find a better future in a Western country. So 
the application load is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he had said something. I don't even, but as a teenager, I yeah. had no clue. I didn't. I wasn't paying attention to any of that. So then, this big, huge piece of news comes through, and how? I mean, it must have been pretty shocking. How did you guys take it? Yeah, it was. It was pretty shocking. I don't. It wasn't necessarily a big deal for me. I was just busy playing cricket, being being a young boy, being out there all the time, just doing my thing. It, for me, I, I'll be really honest. It wasn't until like two days before we were ready, packing everything up, about to get on like a twenty-four hour flight to New York. And how old were you at this point? I was fifteen. I just turned fifteen. Two days before, and I was like, "Oh, oh, wow!" Like. I don't know when I'm coming back. Yeah, like this is really happening. each person has a suitcase and we're leaving. Um, and we even, so like I said, like we had it relatively easy because my brother and my two of my other mom's other brothers, there's mm-hmm. nine siblings all together on my mom's side, but two of her other brothers were already in New York. So we had established base of family members that could actually help us, um, set us up. That was a big reason. I think Winning that lottery wouldn't have meant anything. It would have been too difficult to move family. Maybe we would have done it. I don't know. Like that's a big what if, but that was a big motivator. And my dad still didn't want to come without getting into too many family dynamics. He still he did not. So, uh, but my uncles convinced him at the end. Like you can't deny your kids this opportunity. It's a really big deal. Like you have to go at least go for two years and figure out. Like if it works, you can always come back. I'm pretty sure in my uncle's minds they were like, no, 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 we're not even going to let you come back. There's like, you know, you're going to go stay there. But yeah. Um, can you tell us like, about that flight? I think you told me that it was the first time you'd ever been on an airplane. And can you just share that experience and then landing in New York? And that was um, 1999, right? That was, yeah, June 21st, 1999. I, yeah, I had never been on an airplane. So the first time I got on an airplane, we had a, we had a layover in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and it was, it was like a 10 or 11 hour layover. So like we were in the airport there for a while. Then it was a long flight from Jeddah straight to JFK. Um, yeah, I, I just remember being bored. <laughs> just re- <laughs> like I enjoyed the, like you can only, like you get on the airplane for the first time. You're like, oh, this is kind of cool. Oh, it takes off and all of that. But then like after a while I was like, oh God, I'm tired. <laughs> Did you speak English at the time? Yeah, I, I spoke English. Yeah, I think between me and my younger sister, we kind of had the best English of all four of us traveling. I remember even going to the interview in Islamabad to the embassy. I was the one who answered most of the questions for everyone uh, to the person interviewing us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Because it was nice of the lady who was an American lady interviewing us Mm -hmm. to try to speak Urdu. And I realized she was kind of like, I was like, in my head, I was like, don't hurt yourself. I speak English. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) What was funny is that what she said was perfectly fine, but her Urdu accent was so thick that we couldn't understand what she was saying. Oh, um, so I kind of jumped in and started speaking in English. But yeah, sidetrack. Um, and then we landed in JFK. Our one the most vivid memory, like a couple of things. Obviously, I hadn't seen my brother and my uncle in almost my brother in six years, my uncle in a decade. We came out on whatever I think it was Terminal Two or Three, and they were like right there. And like my my dad hadn't seen my mom, hadn't seen them for a long time. Mm. So they started crying. It was like the classic immigrant story. Like we had only heard each other on the phone for a really long time. And like every year we'll get a package with pictures of what they're doing. But like we're 10,000 miles apart. So all of a sudden we were together. Right. Mm. Wow. But it's also emotional because you have left 
the family back home, yeah. right? They're now you're connected here, but there's another disconnect. So it's always kind of figuring those pieces out. But I came from Karachi. And this was June in New York. It had rained the night before, but the morning was like a 72 degrees morning. So I was, I remember being cold, even like really cold. I was like, oh my God, this is June. Like, what is winter going to be like? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Little did you know. Wow. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I mean, you've told me these stories before, but each time you tell me, I still like have my own emotional reaction because you're, you're just, you're young enough to be adaptable, but you're still leaving behind your friends and your what you know to go to this place that you think is going to be great, but you're not sure, and it's displacement and all sorts of things. And New York, how, how did you feel? Like, you know that moment when you land somewhere and you haven't yet stepped into the life there, so you haven't affected anything yet. Did you have a moment of just, like, looking out and being and just thinking, like, I'm neither here nor there, and I'm about to embark on this whole new... That's such a good question, and I don't even know if I can answer it. Yeah. Like... The neither here nor there applies until today. I've been in yeah. the U.S. for 20 years, and I still kind of feel nomadic. There are times when I feel totally out of place. But I know for a fact that if when, if and when I do go back home, I'll feel the same way there too, mm-hmm. feel out of place. Yeah, so you haven't been necessary. back yet. Have I have every family member has been except me for, for different reasons. Yeah. But yeah, I obviously intend to go back at a certain yeah. point. But yeah, it's a difficult question. It, there was a moment like... It's really interesting, right? Like you're there's so much that goes through your head because it's such a cultural shock. It's a different place. Um, Karachi is, or Pakistan in general, is pretty. I can say homogenous country, right? But you come to New York and like people look different. Everyone, all of a sudden, like I remember we were we moved to an apartment in Bensonhurst, and my very first, like I was, we were we had just settled into the apartment, and my brother was like, "Hey, we need to go get some groceries. Want to come with me? There's a supermarket down the street," and then. It was actually a Chinese supermarket. People who live in Bensonhurst probably know there's this one giant Chinese supermarket on 86th Street. And I walked in and, you know, it's like everyone's from the Chinese diaspora there and they're speaking in Chinese. And so I'm like, oh, wow, that's interesting, right? Like it kind of immediately put me into the New York experience Mm -hmm. of like people from all over the world are here. And then I went to the gas station and the person was from Ethiopia. And right, so just that little trip, I remember that trip so well because... Like so much happened within it trying to make me realize that I'm in a place where everyone's from somewhere mm-hmm. else. Did that help make it easier? It did. Yes, absolutely it did. My So I spoke relatively well English because I went to an English medium school in Pakistan. One of my favorite stories is I got in a like a limo service, like a cab. And the dr- I had been in the country for like six months. Oh, yeah. And the, the driver refused to believe me. He got mad at me. He thought like I had I was born here. <laughs> and... I said, no, no, I've just been in this country for six years. And he was from Lebanon, I remember that. And he just, he kind of screamed at me. He's like, don't, you don't have to lie to me. Like, he's like, I've been here for like 15 years. And, you know, he had a, he had a, he had a thick Arabic accent and like Middle Eastern accent. He was like, he goes, Habibi, you don't have to lie to me. You know, it's, I'm like, dude, dude, nobody, <laughs> dude nobody's chill. chill. Nobody's lying to you. Like, I just, you know, I watched a lot of American movies, maybe, you know. Like, you need to lie to the cab driver. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. So that's anyway. really funny. So you mentioned um, noticing, obviously, immediately the cultural differences. Can you share the story about the subway with our listeners? Etiquette, subway etiquette. Oh yes. <laughs> sorry, I like, if sorry, I put I, you on the spot. No, no, that's perfect. I have all, I, this is like very selfish of me. I'm just having you tell all my favorite stories. <laughs> <laughs> I so so in Pakistan, it's it's very customary. Like if you get on a bus and you're standing and you have a backpack, 
anyone who's sitting, they're going to just immediately ask you to, they're going to put the backpack in their lap while you're standing because you're standing. You don't have to carry weight like, and you don't have to put it on the floor. Like It's so nice and civilized. Yeah, it's like totally normal. Like you don't even like to the point where you'll just get on and you'll just know immediately mm-hmm. like there are no seats available, but someone will ask you, right? to take your bag from you. you. At least that was my experience until I was there in 99, right? So my very first subway ride here, <laughs> I get, in, get on the subway. My uncle used to have his own health and beauty supply store in a pharmacy in Harlem. So from Bensonhurst to Harlem on the D train, I hopped on the <laughs> we hopped on the train and I was like, as the train filled up, we were only like two stops from Coney Island. So it used to be empty, but as it filled up, someone... You were sitting... We, uh, yeah, we were sitting, and it was me and my uncle, and my uncle had been here for a long time, and then he had to, like, I someone came with a backpack, and I kind of literally, like, tapped their quad, and I was like, I can take your backpack, and my uncle's like, <laughs> what the F are you doing? Like, I was like, he's like he's got such a heavy backpack, and, and obviously I got a weird look, and it was like, no, 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 no thanks. Yeah. It was like such a, like, a total New York response, because I like, don't... <laughs> like, and, don't rob me. And then he like, yeah, he, my <laughs> uncle put his hand on his face and was like, dude, just, okay, we need to talk. Like, and <laughs> How many more times did you try that? <laughs> I did, that was it. That was the end of the story. Yeah, just, I, I, do, I do it with my friends, people who I know. Yeah. Um, but things like that, I mean, that's such a perfect example of different, like cultural differences it's, that you don't think about until you're in the situation. Like, oh, that doesn't happen here. Okay, now mm-hmm. I know not to do that. Yeah. It's like when I, I've lived abroad other places. When I lived in Italy, it was like, how do I blend in? <laughs> you know, like trying to blend in. And um, okay, so maybe since this is a running podcast, <laughs> we should talk a little bit about running. Um, <laughs> I know we got into like your whole, like how you got into it on our sneak peek, but. I wanted to ask just a little bit in terms of when you first moved here, you were you were in school and things. So can you tell us about how you transferred your cricket from Pakistan to New York? Oh yeah. I so I came to New York. Listeners will know, not a big cricket scene. <laughs> well, actually probably <laughs> yeah. the biggest one in, in the States, but not <laughs> not that big a cricket scene. Um but kind of immediately there was just so much was different that cricket wasn't even on my mind anymore. Like I tried to find places, but I didn't care. Like, you know, school became a central thing. And as as an immigrant child, I I started working within a within a month, like almost a twenty five hour a week job, right while in high school. So there was no time left for cricket, right? And same similar, like it, throughout college, I worked full time while going to college part time. Or, you know, full-time slash part-time. So it wasn't until 10 years later, I think 2009, when I actually found a cricket team, which was the Columbia, actually, cricket team. But I found it through friends who were who were playing on that, and they needed players. And just through friends of friends, I found out that they're, you know, they actually need a player, and then I, I can actually help out and go start playing again. So that's how I started, kind of, in 2009, joined the Columbia cricket team. And... But before that, there was a small incident that took place, which is I, I love this story in my own head for myself, is when I joined college and when I was in college, I took a um, a public speaking class. And the final in that was presenting something that you only can like present. You have to kind of figure out like what, what's your passion and then try to present. So I decided to explain what cricket is to people, right? Like my audience was from all over the world, but all over New York, but they didn't necessarily understand. Like, I realized there's only one Sri Lankan 
girl in the in the class who will know what cricket is. So I was like, oh, I'll do that. So, But for that, I didn't have any of the cricket equipment, right? So I had to go get that. So I just did some online research. I was now, remember, I'm living in New York, Coney Island in Bensonhurst. I found that, I found a number of the Van Cortland, there was a there was a cricket team near Van Cortland and they had a website and they were actually selling equipment. So I reached out, I found a phone number on the website. This is 2003, I think. And I called the person. He was from Trinidad and Tobago. I still remember. Um, and I asked him, like, hey, I, I told him, like, I need equipment for, I can't really, like, um, tell me how much it is. I'll. He's like, don't worry about it. If you need it for a class, take it from me. I'll give you all the equipment. He was nice enough to, like, just lend me almost $350 worth of equipment. He's like, just come take the one train to its last stop. And I was like, ooh, this is an adventure. So I knew if I told my parents, like, they would never let me go, so I'd never said anything to anyone. I just took the train all the way out, had a meetup spot with him, got in this stranger's car right in front of Van <laughs> Cortland, right in front of Van Cortland Park. Took me up the hill towards Riverdale, and he had a garage full of cricket equipment, and he gave me the stuff and drove me back to the one train. And then I eventually returned his stuff after my presentation was done. My presentation went really well, by the way. But what, the reason I love this story is because I remember getting off the one train and looking around. It was kind of dark, but I was like, oh, that looks like a really big park. I wonder if that's where they play cricket. And now like, I'm part of the Van Cortland Track Club. And like 20 years down the line, and I run there a lot. I The New York Roadrunners Bronx group training opened there. So it was this... One little thing that happened a long time ago, and I would have never if somebody told me that 16 years, 17 years down the line, you'll be back here coaching or running, I would have probably like, what? I know. It's so beautiful how things come full circle like that. Yeah. I also have to point out, I love the fact that when cricket is involved, there's like this whole secret Ali, <laughs> keeping everything close to the vest. <laughs> Mom and dad are on a need to know basis. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so even though I said that we've discussed your running, it would be really wonderful to hear how you transitioned into it. And I know I, I know the story, but maybe you can just share how you went from presenting cricket in school to then coaching, running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. So <laughs> we have until one thirty. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm just... <laughs> I was like, oh my God, are we past 1 o'clock? No. <laughs> We're just being cognizant of our professional studio time. <laughs> but yeah, good good question. So I joined the Columbia cricket team. I played with them for a whole year. Um, is there much running involved in cricket? When when you're batting, okay. yes. That's how you score runs, is crossing places and running. And the faster you are, uh, they're almost sprints usually. It, Can you give us like an express? Oh my no. God, is I'm that, sorry. It, there's, okay. there's no express. Okay. <laughs> it's the closest to baseball. You have to score runs. The other team has to score. Okay. Slightly more run, one run more than you to win the game. Is scoring usually low numbers or high numbers? Very high numbers. Okay. So like two hundred plus. Okay. Yeah. So there's like a lot of how do you pace yourself? How do you how do you strategize things like that? The if the quickest explanation is it's almost like baseball without the foul lines. So like where you bat, you can you can hit the ball or maneuver the ball in any three sixty around you. Right, so the field has to be spread out. the The batting area is in the middle of the ground, right? right? So you can even play fancy touches behind you, or or do some power hitting straight ahead of you, or across in any direction. Right? Does the other team have a position that's equivalent to like the catcher in baseball? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's called a wicket keeper. Oh, I <laughs> yeah. like that. So, how did I transition? So, I think I, yeah, I, I played cricket for a while, then kind of 
work took over. I I started a job at a tech company um, in New Jersey, and I was playing cricket during that time, but only on the weekends. Um, and then running kind of, you know, I look back, it's like I did run for a little bit when I was like in 2010 and 11, just very little. But that there was a very specific reason for that. I used to drive from New Jersey to Brooklyn back uh, while I was working. And every time I would come underneath the Verrazano Bridge, there would be a traffic would be at a standstill. At the time I would come there, I would, the time I would get there usually, just when I would get out of work, by the time I get there, there's a traffic standstill. And then I would only have like two miles to go and it would take like, I don't know, 45 minutes to get home. So what I decided was, I was like, you know, I can use this time better and cause myself less headache. So what I would do is I would get to that point. There was I realized there was like a little rest area you could pull out right underneath the Verrazano Bridge. So I would park there have the cars pile up on the highway, but there's also a running path next to it. And then I would just change into running clothes in the car, run for 45 minutes or 35, 45 minutes. Just, I had no clue like how to pace or do whatever, as long as just like didn't die in 45 minutes, I'll just (laughs) run for that. And by then like the traffic would start easing up, then I'll get in the car and go home and it would be like a 10 minute ride instead of a 45 minute ride, but I would have gotten, gotten a workout. So I did that. It's my kind of my first memory of like, long distance running. And I did that for like six, seven months. And then eventually I moved uptown. So I didn't have the need for that. Where running really started is when I joined Thomson Reuters, where I work still. Um, And one year I got the email, I think it must have been 2015, I think, um, that they wanted people to sign up for the corporate challenge. And I did. And someone was training uh, someone offered um, that they will put out a training plan. They sent out a spreadsheet, like whoever wants to train, just fill in this information and the spreadsheet will actually spit out a plan for you. So I did that and I actually followed the plan to like about 90%. But the plan required one thing, like it asked you to go run a 5K wherever on your own time, kind of try to give it a full effort um, and then log that time into the like so it can know what your 5k fitness is right now. So I remember going to the Fort Tryon Park, not knowing the course, running a really hilly 5k. Um and it took me like 33 and a change and and when I but and then I did 2 months of training and when I ran the corporate challenge I ended up running like 27 minutes and I was like, "Ooh, this works." Um and then after that we had kind of formed a little group and this happens with groups all the time. We had formed a little group of people who started continuously training all the time. It wasn't necessarily about running, but you know, we would do kind of these full body workouts with a little bit of running and things like that with 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 the folks who had trained for corporate challenge already. And then what I started doing, I don't know what got into my head, but after we'd meet in Central Park and do those trainings and then I would just I live uptown, so I would just start running uptown. So first I would just run up to 125th Street because that's all I could run. And then I started increasing that distance over months until one day I just ran home after doing an hour long full body workout. I just, I was able to just run home. And that day I realized I was like, Oh, I think there is something here. Hmm. So it kind of just organically grew into that. um, um, And then it turned out like I, I just started enjoying it and got to a point where I really started enjoying it. There were people involved who encouraged me along the way, Mm -hmm. right? There were a lot of people who were like, oh, okay, if, right? You can if you can just do a ten mile run after a workout. There's something there. You should continue that. Um, 
I love the story of how it began, just sort of as an alternative to getting upset in traffic and that you took the time to do it, something constructive and challenging and new and still got on your merry way in the same amount of time. It's yep. pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you've, um, you know, you you had a couple injuries, so you haven't like raced a marathon in a little while, but can you share with our listeners what your first road marathon time was? Yeah, I ran the wine glass marathon in 2000 and. 17, I ran a 306.34. I'm just going to let that sit for a second. <laughs> Your first road marathon. Yeah. Can you tell us about the trail race that was before that? Because that is super impressive. Yeah, the, the, the trail race says something about my personality. Um, that I don't know, a good or bad, whatever, however you want to take it. So <laughs> obviously I had organically increased my distance, right? Like 10 miles became 12, 12 became 14, 14 became 16. And I remember one day trying to help a friend who was getting ready for a marathon. I ended up running 24 miles around New York, just like going down West Side, cutting into the park, and then meeting the friend. And, you know, just I, I called it my aimless running days. Like I had no goals. I just liked it. I enjoyed it. And it was easy pace and stuff. At a certain point, I, I really enjoy trail running. That's I, I love it especially the more technical, the better. So somebody was like, hey, do you know of the Breakneck Ridge Marathon? I was like, I love the name. Yeah. I don't know about the Breakneck Ridge Marathon. And then I, um, so I went to the website and the sign up was still open and there was a half and a full. So I stared at both of them for a little while and couldn't decide. I'm like, should I do the half? Should I do the full? Should I do the half? The little half? Little like, And then... Half an hour later, I was like full, like without knowing, ever having run a marathon, ever having run a trail marathon. Not, had you done a trail half? Um, I had not run other than the corporate challenge. Yeah, I had okay. not run a race, <laughs> right? I had, Hence, this says something about your personality, right? I like I had run, I'd run races. That's awesome. Uh, not sorry, uh, not races. I'd run on trails a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would go on like hiking trails, and then I would run them and. 10, 20, 10, 12 miles tops, like mm-hmm. never really done anything more than that. And then, so I, I signed up for Breakneck. This was pre-Wine Glass. This was in 2000. I signed up in 2016 for the 2017 um, Breakneck Ridge Marathon. And then I didn't, I had no clue what like Breakneck was like. So I was training in the, I took the, like I read the description and it said it has the most amount of, like really some of the most challenging Courses, it rivals those. 10,000 feet, 10,560 10, feet of elevation over, over the marathon distance and half that over the half marathon distance. And I was like, yeah, 10,000 feet, that sounds a lot. But like not really too much of a reference of what that is. And <laughs> so and so I go to Fort Tryon like an idiot, um, <laughs> Fort Tryon Park in uptown Manhattan, and I find the steepest hills there. It's like 200 feet. <laughs> there, yeah, exactly. So like two, not even, like, you know, 150 feet over a 400-meter distance, right? So they're steep, but they're like short. I didn't, oh God, I didn't so realize funny. that the, yeah. the biggest climb at Breakneck was – Exactly 980 feet over a kilometer. Oh, my right. So gosh. that's a vertical climb. If you don't, that makes the um, river road run like 
Yeah. Small fry. So I'm, I'm, it's so, I'm so glad you bring up River Road because I thought doing a 20 miler on River Road would get me ready for breakneck. <laughs> <laughs> Until I went, it, what, what was the greatest, what, what was the best thing was that I actually did, I signed up for their Facebook page for the Breakneck Ridge Marathon. And then the people who organized it, they had like training, organized training runs that you could okay. do on. So I went and did a seven mile oh, on good. the course and I was, and I realized, oh, I need to I need to train a little bit a little bit more maybe on the course. I remember during the race thinking what have you done? Like what have you signed up signed yourself up because I had on around 14 miles I wanted to quit. I wanted to turn around. It was a point where I could actually cut back to the start and I was really having a tough mental battle. I was totally depleted. I didn't do my nutrition right. I realized right. I had noon but it was noon without sugar. So but can yeah. we talk about that moment where you could have kind of turned the other way and made it a shorter race mm-hmm. as opposed to finishing like what how long just explain it Describe wasn't that it. long yeah it was just explain what, expl- <laughs> yeah let me let me see <laughs> if i can put yeah i got to a point where it was like <laughs> i don't yeah it was just you know you're totally depleted you're yeah. feeling dizzy and i had just come down a big climb at 14 miles and I had totally depleted my sugars. I had the only thing I had on me were dates and I hadn't even used them and I'm 14 miles into this long thing. So you know how big a yeah. mistake that is, mm-hmm. right? I'm just on like electrolytes but no sugar. So it took about just a 60 second because I came down into this valley and then I saw the next climb. Mm-hmm. Mile 15 was another 600 foot climb and I'm like, "Okay, do you want to make a decision now cuz either you climb yeah. that and fall down." <laughs> <laughs> well, not really, but like yeah. either you try not to finish it. So it, I literally took 60 seconds and I made the smart but, you know, not knowingly smart decision of eating the dates that I had on me finally. Yeah. And I think that kind of switched a little bit once the sugar kicked in. You. Yeah. And it was only a 60 second break. I just kind of walked for a bit and then I started going again. I remember, I think, did I know you when you were training for that? I think you were just about to do it when you had started group training. Is that right? I had started group training in January. The race was in was it, April. Yeah. But I had just started knowing our, our group yeah, that we run like with. Yeah, in March, yeah. Yeah, in March and April. Because I remember that and it felt like such a foreign thing to me. But then that you went onto the road. Mm. <laughs> oh, wait, but how long did it take you to run? Seven and a half hours. Okay. Yeah. What was your? I know it doesn't. None of this matters, but it's just interesting to compare like a trail marathon to a road marathon. So, what was the average pace that you had on that? Seven and a half hours. I actually it's like thirteen, eleven. That's the thing. Like the they had to change the course the very last minute, so it actually my watch registered about twenty eight and a half miles, close oh, to okay. twenty nine. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Yeah, whatever that is, like thirteen, fourteen minute pace. I think. I'm passing notes to my co-host guest. <laughs> um, wait before we before we like kind of wrap it up because now we're like on studio time. We can't just shoot the shit. <laughs> um, so okay, so you went from the trail run to then running wine glass, and you've done many races and halves in between, and then you did Berlin last year. What is on the horizons for Ali? I've had a injury and some medical issues over the last few months. So I'm just right now just coming back. I'm kind of focusing on coaching and just building my mileage up. But the next 
event in my mind is London 2020. And uh, that's exciting. London Do you Marathon. plan to run that with anyone? I do plan to run that with someone. Who's that person? Yeah, my training partner, co-host, Chill Tribe Friday <laughs> nerd. Yeah. <laughs> it's like London take two. <laughs> London take two. We're, yeah, we're supposed to be at 2020 this year, but then kind of got hit with both. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. I mean, it sort of brings in a nice transition in terms of like we both did a little jaunt around the lower loop this morning to kind of, I felt like it was a school progress report, you know, and you get like a pop quiz. Maybe you haven't prepared, but you just see what happens. We did that this morning. Uh, New York Roadrunners sponsored a community run this morning, which was amazing. I, it was the first year, the inaugural year, and I just thought it was such a beautiful morning. They had a running wave, a walking wave, and a stroller wave, and it was so wonderful to just see all of these people come and join in, and it, it's a wonderful, easy segue to get people into the running community, and there were so many happy kids and there were like there were a few they they played the start to the stroller wave on the Instagram and it was really cool to see like the the front people running maybe yeah. people were training you yeah. know there's like lots of hardcore stroller running in mm-hmm. uh, New York City um, but it was a wonderful morning and yeah. we got to run I saw kids having the the face painting station that yeah. was really nice to see it was cool it well was we can make can I make this about you for a second like um, you haven't you have had you've been dealing in and out of injury for like. 10 months now, and this was kind of your first yeah. comeback, a little bit of a throwdown, right? It was, fun. it was fun to put a bib on and like actually race, not just be like, I'm going to go run the mileage. Like I raced. Yeah. yeah. And what happened? Um, well, my nine and a half minute pace warm up felt like I was going to die. So mm-hmm. I kind of gave myself the out. I was like, eh. <laughs> uh-huh. And then that horn goes off and like, <laughs> it's like a Pavlovian response. <laughs> Pavlovian response to jump into 545 pace. (laughs) I know. I was like, oh, wait, that's a little fast. (laughs) I definitely went out too fast, but backed up pretty quickly. So, yeah, I I ran the lower loop and a mile and a half, 610 pace average, which was, I was a surprise to me. I'm going to be totally honest. I didn't think I could go under 645. So I was really pleased. It's been... um, You know, that's a huge discrepancy. <laughs> I know I'm usually pretty good at assessing, but I—that's the thing about where I am—is I had no idea where I was going to be. That's exactly because, why I'm saying that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've had so much up and down, in and out, on and off, mostly off, out, in, not in, out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been doing. It's been eight weeks since starting walk running, and you know, I had two solid weeks of 20 miles. So anyway, it's nice. It was really fun. Just the whole routine. I set my race kit out last night, actually yesterday afternoon (laughs) and took a photo and like 4 p.m. Did the whole, yeah, yeah. 4 p.m. Did the whole like couldn't sleep last night. It felt like the first day of school. I was really excited. I was just racing's fun. And that feeling afterwards of like, oh wow. And a mile and a half was like the perfect distance to race after, you know, I'm not totally healed, so it's a little bit of. I think it's a little bit of a stimulus for that is so right. That's so right. And you placed in top five. I did. I know it came up as it's interesting. I think that maybe that the the timing machines have some issues, so we'll figure out the exact result. But it you, it showed up as overall third first. Yeah. Uh, but then there, the times were changing as the results came in. So, but it's definitely it's in the top five. So that's amazing to like 
come up, be like, I'm going to put on a bib. I can't go down under. I don't think I can run faster than 6.45. And I'm like, I'm in top five. <laughs> I know. Well, it's funny because um, I'm always worried. If I go, you know, you feel that feeling sometimes if you're going out too fast or if you're really tired in a workout, that like rubber bandy lactic acid mm-hmm. thighs. I was really worried that that was going to happen. And it didn't. Be, and, you know, that was the thing. It's like, I didn't, giving yourself a wide berth to figure out where you're going to land. Like, okay, so I was going. 5.45 in the beginning, then slowed down to 6. And it was nice to be seeing like 6.10 on my watch and being like, okay, I can back off. Like I can, if I backed off three times and that was really nice to know that like, okay, this is cool and I don't have to kill myself or go to the edge every time as Roberto Mange says. Like you don't have to go to the edge every time. And it was cool and, you know, there were, it's great to race with people and the lower loop, it's very curvy. So I was like trying to do the tangents, but it's really hard to do the tangents when there's only half the road. <laughs> And other people were too. So there, there were a couple like um, near trips and stuff, but it's fun, you know. Like Man. racing makes you very alert. Yeah, you're like on ten the whole yeah, time, yeah. and like what's happening all around you. It's yeah. amazing how much goes through your head. Like as I was finishing, like sprinting into the finish, they had the men and the women separated still. Like they hadn't removed the separation <laughs> cones. Yeah. And that's when I realized, because we were running together, I was yeah. like, oh my God, this is going to be like a top finish for her because they were still separating them. I know, it's funny, and I couldn't figure out like what the guy was saying. So I was just going in the middle and then I was just going to do like a quick left or right. And mm-hmm. then I then I heard what he was saying. Yeah. What if you did like, a, hectic. like a football quick move? like and, <laughs> Twist my other <laughs> ankle? <laughs> You're like, well, there goes that. <laughs> um, anyway, so that was really fun. So now, um, yeah, I'm just going to keep... Being careful and build some mileage, and it's nice to know that like can do that without any speed work. So, um, yeah. so I just want to thank you for sharing. I mean, we could have sat here for two hours and kept talking, and I'm sorry. I feel like we're sort of cutting off, but now we are like on studio time, That's which good. is very exciting. So, thank you should... again, thank you, listeners, so much for supporting us and listening. And um, it's been Ali story time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed them. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing so much. And we'll do like a part two in a couple months. <laughs> it just keeps going. No, we have to reverse it. So like, you have to tell your stories. You have a lot of hilarious stories that could be shared. Yeah. Alrighty. Um, thank you. And we'll see you in two.